So, um... Where is this... this green place? to the Mad Max Minute. We're on a long night's run heading east in Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 62, which begins with Capable and the Dag dragging Cheeto back to the war rig, and it ends with Capable making her way along the top of the tanker. Joining us once again are Heidi Bennett and Brian Bennett from the Vibrant Visionaries podcast. Ooh. Howdy, howdy. Welcome back here at the middle of the week. I... Played it off like it was no big deal on Monday, but I got such a kick out of it, I couldn't help but mention it here. The autocorrect on my notes here, when I was talking about Cheeto back on Monday, autocorrected a lot of them from Cheeto back to cheese, which... (laughs) Cheese is great. Don't get me wrong, but it would have really changed the scene to pull Cheeto out and just put in a wheel of cheese. Do you think they have cheese... Can you make cheese out of breast milk? Human breast milk. She's specify, I guess. Probably. Probably. I don't know. They have a whole tanker full of it in the middle of the desert, so... And it's been jostling around, getting yeah. shaken up. So maybe there's cheese there already. Well, I was going to say that we were eating Cheetos while watching these minutes, so... <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. <laughs> yes, but with a T, not a D. Well... Mm. It all sounds the same coming out of my mouth. In theory, you could take just about any lactic compound, add a acid into it, and turn it into cottage cheese. And then with regular cheese, I think there's a certain process to it, for sure, but I don't see why not. I know there's certainly not going to be a widespread market for it. It's a very niche item. Yeah, people get weirded out enough about breast milk that I don't think they could just, you know, reach into their fridge and grab a prepackaged slice of breast milk to throw on their ham sandwich. I don't think that would jive with a lot of people. Julia, you look like you're doing research. I am. I googled it. (laughs) These first few seconds, Mm -hmm. which are picking up, you know, with them picking up Cheeto and hauling her back to the rig, so to speak. But I was getting a real uh, Three Muses vibe from the way that they're gathering her up so that they're all arms, you know, linked around her. And uh, yeah, so they just looked like, you know, Grecian Muses. And I thought it was just another lovely, one of many beautiful pieces of imagery from this this movie. While we're looking at this shot, it just calls to mind that the Dag and Capable, I don't know where they got their shoes, but of the five wives, those are the two that get to wear shoes, and those are the two that just happen to also run after Cheeto, probably because it was the easiest on them. Well, we actually didn't talk about it on Monday that Toast makes a little bit of an effort to run after her, but she stops pretty quick. Yeah, she kind of half jogs after them. She's also holding a machete for some reason. Yeah. I think we've talked before, maybe not in so many words, that Toast is 
I think, the least emotional and the least attached to the other women. I don't think that she really feels a great need to chase after Cheeto. Plus, she's not wearing shoes. Yeah. In the cab, she sort of separates herself body language-wise and even has her own window that frames her out. Not in this moment here that we're talking about, but just I observed throughout sort of how they, yeah, comport themselves within that cabin. And she's always seeming to be over to one one side doing her thing. And I can see being that person too. You know, like even though I study compassion and I think of myself as a deeply compassionate person, I do think that's definitely one of the, you know, ways of dealing with trauma and um, chaos is to pull into yourself Mm -hmm. and sort of separate yourself from everyone else and, and get in your own head. And it's a place of safety, maybe. Yeah, and I think Toast also probably has adjusted the fastest to this new reality. And it just came like, ah, if you want to go, go fine. That's just, you know, less resources we have to find for keep ourselves running. <laughs> like, fine, go back. <laughs> as long as we're out of here, we're good. Yeah, I think she's the rational one might be the best way to describe it. They call her Toast the Knowing, so she's probably the bookish one. The one that didn't quite have as much charisma as Angherid. And now that there is a sort of power vacuum in the dynamics of the wives, I have to wonder, does Toast think this is her time to, I guess, become the new leader of the wives or something like that? It's an interesting situation that I'm not sure I have a full grasp on, despite the fact that we're over an hour into this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you mentioned, and I think very accurately, that there is a bit of a power vacuum amongst the wives. And it'll be very interesting in the coming minutes throughout the rest of the movie to see where that goes. Mm-hmm. And there's something said, that, like, if she is the knowing, if you do know a, a lot about a situation, then you know all the different aspects of it, too. And so you're kind of more of a real, you know, you can be more of a realist about things. It's, sometimes you get envious of, like, oh, I wish I didn't know about you know, X, Y, and Z, because I could be a lot more calm in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I, I talk about this stuff a lot when I used to do I used to do physical security management and just knowing that like how easy it is to break into most things would surprise you and this knowing that most things about you know security is just like an accepted agreement like it's a polite gentleman's agreement that we're not going to do all this stuff and we're going to have rudimentary things in between like breaking into homes or yeah like- exactly it's surprisingly easy to you know, pick locks or, you know, it depends on the thing. It's a skill to learn, but I mean, it, it is kind of crazy how useless a lot of stuff like that is. <laughs> and so just like, oh, I'd rather just think that that everything's fine. Yeah. <laughs> then, then like, know that everything is not fine, but we're all just agreeing that it is. I think that statement is something that the wives have been running on. Like, we know everything's not fine, but we're agreeing that it is. Yeah. That has been true for a little while, and all of a sudden, that's not the case anymore. Everything is not fine, and we do not agree that it is okay, and we're going to all act like it's not okay. And in the midst of all of this freaking out, you've got Furiosa, who's got the long rifle, and she's still just picking off war boys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she may have lost one, but she's not going to lose the rest of them if she can help it. And... This whole situation between Cheeto and the other wives and Furiosa shooting war boys and Max trying to cool down the truck, it all fades to black. And we get an indiscriminate 
span of time passing. Enough time has passed that, as we see in this next shot, Joe's war boys have been able to clear the pass of the canyon and bring his entire war party through. Right in the middle, you've got the Giger horse off to screen left. You've got the Peacemaker with the bullet farmer on it. And off to the immediate right of the Giger horse, you've got the People Eater's limo. And what's interesting about this shot is that back in minute three, when we first saw the shot where the little girl was getting run over by the war party, this is that exact same shot, just color balanced and painted a little differently. Mm. Like, I went and I freeze-framed it at a very specific point. I don't know which second off the top of my head. I didn't write it down. But you can go between minute 62 and minute 3, and they are exactly identical with the express difference that there's a little curl pasted over the front of the shot earlier in this movie. <laughs> and this is such just a beautiful, iconic shot, too. The way it's framed or thing, it's like... I'm hoping most of this, at least the alignment of the vehicles, was practical. But this is definitely a shot they should like teach cinematographers. <laughs> it's just it's it's crazy how beautiful that scene is. Yeah, this flying V formation and the clouds coming yeah, the clouds. at the same time. Yeah, we're heading into sunset. I would suspect a couple hours have passed. Yeah, and the sky is full of clouds. They are angry and a bit heavy. We got the sunset. It almost looks like it's raining in the far background. Like there's a certain fuzziness to it. But I don't think it rains anymore, so I don't think that's the case. No, it's probably just dust. Probably just dust. But it accentuates the sunset. But it would be so easy for them to do this practically. Yeah, there's real levels of texture and color. Yeah, I imagine mm -hmm. the, the, the practical shot is just this in the desert and then... A lot of fantastic work by the colorists and the mm -hmm. the CG people to turn it into this just absolutely gorgeous shot. Yeah. The presence of the sunset, it brings my mind back to past Mad Max movies where it has been noticeable that George Miller doesn't really care about where the light is coming from. He gets <laughs> his shot and he's happy. Mm -hmm. And... It's a mark of, I think, growth for him and the influence of good editing and good budget <laughs> that he put together a shot like this where where the light is coming from is a very important part of the composition. And very consistent because when we see the war party drive over us, we get another fade to black. And when we fade in, we get this beautiful profile shot of the war rig driving against the sun. And when we go into the war rig, the sun is always consistently coming in from the same side of the war rig. He didn't switch it around based on shots and angles so that people are lit a certain way. Everybody's always getting lit by that setting sun. This kind of tells me that they're heading north more so than east. But then again, they could also be going like a northeasterly direction. And depending on the time of year, the sun doesn't set due west like perfectly all year yeah. it moves up and down so it could be just the time of year making it feel like we're driving north yeah plus it's supposed to be in australia so the whole hemisphere situation is totally different not that it's like i think prohibitively that, different but you know what i mean yeah i mean yeah it is different but i don't know by how much yeah and you, and you see the angle like when, when they're in the cab it's definitely it's not coming directly from the side it's, it's kind of coming more from the um about 
10 o'clock angle. So when we get into the cab, Max is tying up his hand finally when they were lashing the little crossbow thing into the wheel position. He was still freely bleeding. And so now that they've taken care of everything and they're back on the road, he can finally take some time to ditch up that hand that got crushed by that steering wheel. A little bit of first aid. Oh, man. I, I watched that. I know that's not part of this specific minute, but it just <laughs> takes me back. I watched that a few times last night and watching how his, you're talking about how good, Brian, how good he is with his facial expressions. And <laughs> there's, I don't think I've ever seen him in anything else look the way he looks when that hand is getting crushed. <laughs> he was so angry at that steering wheel. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and he's like surprised, like I think Reese's monkey. You it's know, kind of like that, that. That this this is not making sense. I can't compute it right away. Like what's yeah. going on? And then it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, definitely. And has anyone talked about like Furious's like shoulder, like with a pauldron or whatever the term is for that on armor? I don't think we've ever gone into detail on her prosthetic, like the individual parts. Because I noticed, like hanging down is like a like like a square key driver, kind of like our house is very old and has like the old floor heater, and it has you know that's the type of key we used to like if you were to turn it on. Yeah, it's like this square drive thing hanging down, but then it's looks like it's part of a fender or a hood with the like ventilation slots in it that has been trimmed down and then it looks like part of like an rc plane motor like that's like a piston from just like a, a model at least that's what it looks like to me you know, the, the parts sticking out there it's trying to diff- break down like all the stuff they cobble together for these props but yeah i'm of two minds we have seen decorations in other places within the cult of the v8 where seemingly random items have been brought in to act as decoration which might be what's going on here. But also, Furiosa is very capable and knowledgeable, and she is very one with her truck. So I would like to think that the things that she has on her person are useful things. Yeah, well, the the, the piece of a fender or something, you know, would be practical and use, you know, reusing part of that. And, like... The other thing why I was thinking it was just part of an RC engine, even if it's just decorated, it is part of a is a small engine part. Yeah. To kind of go with the whole V8 worshipping theme, but on a smaller scale. You know, obviously mm-hmm. you don't want to have a <laughs> V8 engine part on your shoulder. <laughs> tends to reduce the flexibility. I imagine there is some sort of mechanical element to her prosthetic as well, that this little T-shaped thing that's dangling from her shoulder, like, if there's a spring that needs to be tightened every so often so that she can bend and manipulate her hand a certain way and she's got to pull on that every so often to just get it wound up again or oh, some other you, sort of thing. Oh, I like that idea. You know what? That I didn't even think about that, but yeah, that would explain having a small motor there. Yeah, because it looks like a little she, bit like a ripcord. <laughs> yeah, now that you mentioned that, I was going to say, at first when I saw it, I thought it was like a, a key check, like for a drill. yeah. Uh, it was just like, yeah, it was always good to have one of those lying around. You know, you, know, you always lose it when you, you know, whenever you need it. But now that you mentioned that it's a pull start, yeah, that would make sense to kind of like pull start this small motor to run her arm. Between second 27, when we cut back to the shot looking across Furiosa to Max, and second 30, when she's moving around, that little key is dangling on a string and it's bopping around. And if you're focused on her shoulder, it's hard not to see it. 
because it's movement. It's distracting, you know. Yeah. Unless you're looking where George Miller wants you to look, which would be up at their faces. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I like the idea that like now that I think that you're correct, it is a pull start for that motor. And that motor helps uh, just like run her arm. Yeah, you know, run the hydraulics maybe here. Interesting. Interesting. I was sort of obsessed in this section also about how their faces are all framed. Each one of them gets their own frame, you know, window frame for their heads. And now that I'm looking at, um, <clears throat> what's the character's name that looks almost like an albino behind her there? Oh, the that's the dag. The dag, she has such an angelic look and that she's almost like an angel on her shoulder, too. On Furiosa's shoulder. Yes, yeah. I definitely see what you mean. Yeah, was it on the, 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 the angel and demon? Which shoulder? Is it the left shoulder that your angel's supposed to be on? <laughs> I'm I not think, sure. I think they're typically opposite. But you're right, you do have Max off of one shoulder and the dag off of another. And one of them is more decidedly bathed in light, where the other one is cast in shadow. For sure. Mostly because the back door was torn off when they hit the rock and (laughs) and Angerd fell from it, but... (laughs) But Then, you know, right after this, you see Toast looking very much like Mary Magdalene. Yes, and everyone kind of getting their, like I was saying, like their individual little window to be in. Mm-hmm. Everybody has their own little opening, little light. Or almost like a halo, mm-hmm. like a square halo. I find it very interesting that previously Cheeto has been all over the DAG looking for reassurance and comfort and guidance. And now, since Cheeto had her meltdown... Now it is Capable who is taking that role for Cheeto, and Dag is all by herself. Yeah. Well, also, Capable lost the person that she was coddling, so if Cheeto is looking for someone to comfort her, and Capable is looking for someone to comfort, that's just a matchup that was bound to happen. Yes. And jokingly, I was also mentioning that the the, the shot of the four of them in the back seat kind of looks like the back seat on the tail end of any family vacation road trip. <laughs> oh, everyone's yeah. just like oh my god are we done i just want to go home yeah there's a lot of <laughs> facing away from each other definitely <laughs> so max as he's driving i guess now that they're out of danger he has the luxury to bring this up he looks over at furios and he says so um and whenever someone says um in a video i'm like i just want to pause roll back cut it out and then squish everything together. But that's me and my editor senses. He says, so um, where is this, uh, this green place? It's like, we've been driving for a couple of hours now. Uh, where are we going? Yeah. Now well, that we're not fearful of our lives, um, yeah. where, where are we headed again? Do you have a map quest printout? Do you got a, like a Garmin GPS in your pocket? Like, is there any way... Do, do I have an exit that I should be looking for? What's the situation here? I'm not noticing a lot of green in front of us right now. Yeah. And Furiosa more or less recycles a line that she used earlier in this movie when she was talking to the ace before the buzzards attacked. She says, it's a long night's run, heading east. We're just constantly heading east. Again, going back to family road trips, whenever my, me or my brother asks, like, when 
or where our destination was. My dad's patent reply was just over that hill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, long night's run. That really could be anything. (laughs) And Furiosa doesn't really give a lot of time for follow-up questions because she seems to jump right into... We need inventory. I want you to match every gun with its bullets. And she tosses the gun bag into the back seat for them to look at. And no one reacts. Mm-hmm. No, no one accepts this assignment. I think at the moment they are all just too spent. They are not too spent to actually do the things assigned to them. But to have functioning communication skills. Not so much right now. No. And so Furiosa, she has a harness that she wears whenever she needs to do repairs while the war rig is running. So she slips that over her shoulder and says, I'm going to go down below and I'm going to work on the truck. And before Furiosa has a chance to leave, Max pipes up and says, we need someone down the back to keep watch to make sure that we don't get snuck up on by another motorcycle with war boys on it. And Capable is quick to volunteer. And... Furiosa is obviously like, no, don't split the party. Everybody stick together. I don't want someone falling off again. But Mm -hmm. Capable says, no, I can do it. And I have to wonder, is this Capable wanting to distract herself with a task or is she just looking to have some alone time where she can process everything that's happened on her own? Or just living up to her name. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Her body language, her eyes. Yeah, she, she is, is so serious at this point. Of just like, F. look, I'm not, I don't need to be sitting here doing this. Like, you need something done? I'm going to freaking do it. Let's let's go. <laughs> if you've got a problem, yo, she'll solve it. Yeah, essentially. It's kind of like, oh, something needs to be done. All right, I'll do it. You know, if no one else is, you know, obviously you can't do it because you need to go fix the thing. And no one else here is going to, it's like, you think the dag or. Uh, Cheeto's getting like Cheeto's crying. Dag's staring out the window. Toast is completely checked out. <laughs> it's like out of your options, I'm it. And fierce is the absolute correct word to use because when Capable leans forward with the binoculars, she is staring right into Furiosa's eyes, and she says, "I can do it," almost to challenge her. Yeah. And when she volunteers, her eyes never look away. She mm-hmm. looks at Furiosa. She locks eyes with her. And this is, and you may have already gone through everyone's bios, but this is where I looked her up and saw, and it's to me very apparent in her face, that she is the granddaughter of Elvis. Yes, it is. You see it in her face. Yeah, you see that in her face. And, um, uh-huh, uh-huh. I could just... <laughs> See, she's got that like it's charisma almost, and swagger. It's like a yeah. swagger just in the chair, like a, mm-hmm. you know, just a sitting swagger. And I do want to clarify myself. I don't think that Capable is challenging Furiosa in a I'm the captain now sort of way. I think it's sort of a challenge in a you don't have to do everything for us. That's sort exactly of way. it. Yeah. It's like you need to learn to delegate is yeah. essentially that look. They call me Capable for a reason. <laughs> And what happened to Ang Herod happened while she was sacrificing herself for the safety of the rest of the group. And it was an unfortunate result, but her actions did work. They did protect the group. Yeah. 
from Joe. So that's a risk that you run when you put yourself out there for other people. And just because you see some people pay the price for that doesn't mean you can't follow in those footsteps. If that were the case, nobody in the world would have a military at all. I find it interesting that you look at Ang Herod's death as a sacrifice, because I see it more as just a freak accident. Well, I see it as a freak accident resulting in her putting herself out there. And so I think it's indirectly a sacrifice. She was willing to sacrifice herself to put herself in between Joe and the rest of the group. And her death was a result of that action. Yeah, that's well put. Because she puts herself in harm's way, not because she wants to die necessarily, but because her instincts are telling her to do something to protect the family and everyone over protecting just her and the baby. Mm -hmm. I would certainly call it heroic. Very much so. And I think that if she had known the outcome, if she knew that if she died doing this, it would ensure the safety of the wives, she would have done it anyways. I also think that if she knew ahead of time that she was going to slip on her own blood, she wouldn't have tried to climb around the outside of the war rig and would have just gone around to the back and crawled up through the axis way. Well, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Capable's not letting Ang Herod's accident prevent her from behaving like Ang Herod in other ways. Ang Herod would have volunteered to go to the back and to keep watch. Mm -hmm. And Capable does climb out that open side door instead of going down through the access way (laughs) where you don't have to hang out over the speeding by ground. Is it just uncomfortable to crawl through there? Is that just the sense that I never got? Or it's currently covered in the bag of guns and ammo. Maybe. I think Capable went out that door on purpose. It, it was her act, like, similar to you mentioned before, it's her act of defiance. Yeah. She is not going to be defined by this accident. She is going to face it head on. She is going to challenge its outcome and keep doing the things that need to get done. Get back up on that metaphorical horse. Yes. Just as long going as she... Going through the door that killed Ang Herod. Just as long as she... Keeps an eye out for the slippery spot. Yes. Well, she's wearing boots. It reminds me of when our dog Pokey, she has this stool that she has to make a running leap to jump up on. And then it's her (laughs) little princess stool. Uh And sometimes she biffs it and does not make it. And every time she does, I always encourage her to come on, buddy, you know, get back up on there. And it's like, I want to erase the previous biff with the success for her. And so I feel like that's, yeah, she's saying, like, I'm not going to let that curse us with, oh, this door, this open door area means danger. I'm going to just bust right through it anyways and hop up on that stool. (laughs) (laughs) So as Capable goes out the side door, Furiosa goes out her door, and we're left with the few remaining people that decided not to go anywhere. So we focus in on Toast. She's got her little infinity scarf hood thing that she pulls off because now it's business time for counting and she wants something to put on her lap to collect these bullets. And we get a little peek 
inside the bullet bag. She's starting with shotgun shells and then she'll probably move on to smaller stuff. But in the bag, we can see at least one gun, at least a knife. But it looks like there are a lot of the little crossbow bolt explosive things that go with the crossbow that Furiosa is using as a makeshift steering wheel right now. And it's nice to see that she has a lot of those because as we saw during the buzzard chase, they can do a lot of damage. Yeah. Yeah, so it was make it dirt high, it kinda of looks like my tool bag. But with <laughs> with a few more guns in it. No yeah. uh, uh, but yeah, it's like, it's like oh I have a wrench and for some reason a handful of nails and you know, <laughs> like a knife that without a sheath on it. It's like, yeah, this could probably be safer. Um yeah, exactly. I was like, I was looking at that bag. I'm like, I'm not really seeing too many bullets, which, you know, we get the rundown from her later, you know, in a of like what's actually in there is like, oh, yeah, there weren't a lot of bullets in there. <laughs> the attack by the Rock Raiders burned through so much of their ammunition that they are at a marked disadvantage right now. And I'm trying to get something like, is that a pen? No, I think it's a... <laughs> I like how she has her little toothpick in her mouth, too. That gives her a little, a little, tufty. A little tufty attitude. Yeah, where did she get that? What is it? I mean, it's not a piece of wood. Might be. Do they really have wood anymore? Yeah, who knows? It's, I don't know, yeah. Definitely looks like a broken, like a toothpick with a broken end. Yeah, yeah, it does. It could be anything. It could be a little length of copper wire. Maybe she found it in the bag. Yeah, it's like it's like your kitchen junk drawer. Yeah, you never know. There's <laughs> yeah. always a toothpick in that. <laughs> but yeah, it definitely gives her that Vasquez type appeal to her as the quote unquote tough one. Right. Because not only does she have the little pixie cut, she's also got the toothpick thing hanging out. And you can almost imagine her ribbon with the other boys about how they're just as wimpy as they think that she is. Exactly. And she kind of has that attitude now, too, of like. Uh, Furiosa, Furiosa's not here. Capable's not here. I guess I'm in charge now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, all right, I'll just get this done. I'm the knowing. I guess I have to do the counting. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> well, that's okay. another thing with um, when you're in a, a state of, of trauma like this is that having a task, you mm -hmm. know, gives your brain something to focus on, too. Right. Out. Yeah, she's like, well, I'm the, I'm the only one currently not curled up in a ball staring off into space, so I guess <laughs> yeah. I'll do this job. Something menial, just like you said, Heidi, something to take her mind off. And speaking of menial tasks, you know, we join Capable up on top of the tanker. There's nothing more menial than keeping a lookout. And she is trudging her way along the top of this tanker with just blowing by and billowing. And we don't actually get to see her enter the fortification at the back of the tanker because the minute cuts off. But that's where we'll be joining her when we come back on Friday. I like the way they film it where they have that effect. I can't remember the proper term for it when they just drop frames. Like every every third frame, they just drop out. So it kind of gives like a weird, slightly sped up effect, but also like a flicker. Yeah, it's not as gratuitous as we've seen in other movies. It's only slightly sped up, and then I think they bring it back down to regular speed when she actually starts crouching down to go into the embankment. So it's so out of the regular that it's novel. It's a really subtle effect, too, that you don't mm -hmm. quite register, like, what's going on with this? Why does this scene feel weird? No, it should feel weird. Yeah, it, it makes you feel uneasy and you're not sure why, because you yep. just don't register it. It's, it's uh, subliminal. That's the word I was looking for. 
One detail about this embankment that I want to call attention to before we cut for the day is the fact that there are two seats that are welded to the top of the embankment. One of them is right next to a harpoon turret, and then the other one, the turret, has been ripped clean. But it is designed for people to sit up on top of this thing, not be protected down inside of it. Gotcha. That's an interesting tactical choice. (laughs) Did they show examples of that early when they're, you know, leaving the Citadel? I think there were warboys, like, at those stations. Oh, yeah, because yeah, the other one, the other harpoon is just, it's broken and hanging down. You can see the skull at the bottom of the, the frame. But yeah, I think there were warboys there. When the elevator was coming down with the tanker on it, this was back in the week where we had George and Crystal Beth. And George saw someone sitting up on this and they were fiddling with that rigid banner thing. And he's like, oh, yeah, it totally looks like someone playing a piano. And we had to stop and be like, oh, where's the piano player? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't see it. Yeah, it was it was a dude sitting up on a chair like that and fiddling with the uh, rigid banner. On that note, that brings us to the end of today's minute. We will be coming back on Friday where Furiosa is going to hang out under the rig, Capable is going to find a stowaway, and Nux will bemoan his lost glory. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit madmaxminute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 62 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time. <laughs>